we as a church have just had an opportunity to walk through this whole book of 1 Corinthians over the last weeks. And I hope that as we've gone through the series, you have learned to love this book too and what it says about being the church. We have emphasized throughout the series that this book is written to the Corinthians with a very specific purpose. That is, to talk to the early church about what it means to be church, what it looks like to be in a church. They were a confused group of people. They were making some major mistakes. There were divisions forming. There were alliances starting to form up to different leaders. And so Paul writes a letter to set the record straight. He spent time planting this church, but now that he has left, things seem like they're on the verge of falling apart. They're forgetting some of the core things that he taught them while he was there, and so he gets it down in writing. We highlighted this focus on church in the letters by titling each session in our series, Something in the Church. I opened the first series talking about unity in the church, this idea that God's death and resurrection has put us all on the same playing field that we are united in him. Mike spoke next about wisdom in the church. This world can twist our way of thinking to sinful and human desires, but through the Holy Spirit, the church can be given God's wisdom. And Darren spoke about morality in the church, what it looks like to hold each other accountable, how we can so often get it wrong by focusing on judgment over love and on division over unity. We talked about sacrificial service in the church, Asking the question, what does it look like when followers of Jesus put everything on the line for Christ and desire to live up for this calling? On Easter, we jumped a little bit ahead to 1 Corinthians 15 and spoke about the powerful hope that we have because of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins, but his resurrection defeated death itself. We have hope through Jesus coming back that God has won the battle. And Darren also spoke on giftedness in the church. Paul has this incredible analogy, this famous analogy in 1 Corinthians of the church as a body that just resonates in so many beautiful ways and speaks to this idea of us being different but equal, being uniquely gifted to serve God while still being totally attached to and a part of something larger than ourselves. And last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 to speak on love in the church. And that chapter is so often looked at as a chapter for marriage and for romantic relationships. But Paul is speaking here very specifically about how to show love with other Christians. How to show love in the church. And Darren reminded us that if we start to focus on trying to be all the things that chapter 13 lists. To be patient and kind, not envying not proud, not self-seeking, not keeping record of wrongs, and so on and so on. We can very quickly get overwhelmed. He said, instead, we should focus on being filled with love. 1 Corinthians isn't a checklist for us as Christians. It is a description of the nature of love. And if we simply focus on love itself, the other things will flow out as a result. It's a powerful reminder. I love that. And I want to mention, this is a good plug here, that all of these sermons are available on our website, as well as by podcast. It's been a great series, I think. And each new sermon has brought an important piece of the puzzle to what it means to be, to exist in the church. So if you missed any one of these, I encourage you to head online and catch up on what you missed. But today, I'm going to close off the series 
with, with 1 Corinthians 14 and talk about the same thing that we started with. Unity. Unity in the church, part two. Or maybe unity in the church, amen. So let's read from this chapter. I'm going to start at verse 6 and go through till verse 19. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, those who do not understand, sorry, if you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct to others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This passage has a lot to say about the nature of giftedness. It is really a natural continuation of what Paul has been talking about in chapters 12 and 13. In chapter 12, he talks about giftedness, unique abilities that we have. And in chapter 13, he talks about love, about being filled with love. And in these verses, it's a practical example, it's a practical application of those truths. A few verses earlier, Paul says that if we speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, we are simply a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. And here he echoes that. He says, if one were to speak in tongues without a word of instruction, we're like an out-of-key flute or harp or a bugler that is playing out of tune. A flute has beauty and purpose, but if it's used improperly, it is useless. In fact, if any of you have been around somebody learning a band instrument for the first time, if a flute or trumpet or harp is played improperly, it can be, I'm going to use church words here, aggressively irritating. But the flute or the bugle itself is not bad. That's important to understand. Paul is not saying that speaking in tongues is bad. He confirms that it is a good and edifying gift and says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. So the issue here is presented most clearly in verse 16. And that's the verse I really want to center in on 
for this sermon. Paul's main concern is this. He says, if you are praising God with your spirit, if you are speaking in tongues, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. So the issue here isn't specifically tongues. It's not that the tongues speaker isn't worshiping properly. Paul says he or she may be giving thanks well enough. The problem is that others are not able to say amen to that thanksgiving. It's that others are not able to participate with or to understand that worship experience. Tongues is a specific example that Paul is using, but I think it is fairly safe to expand this idea beyond that specific example of tongues. Paul is saying here that when it comes to worship in the church, when it comes to being together as a part of the body of Christ, something can be good and it can be worshipful and it can be personally edifying, but if it is not allowing the church community to say amen with you, it's missing the point. There, there is a concept in psychology called semantic satiation. You've all heard of this, right? Me neither. At least not until I started Googling yesterday to see if there was a term for the idea that I wanted to talk about. Semantic satiation, besides being super fun to say, semantic satiation. Can, can you imagine Sean Connery trying to pronounce that? Anyways, semantic satiation is actually just a fancy way to describe a really simple concept that you're all probably familiar with at some level. It's how when you repeat words over and over and over again, they start to lose their meaning. If you're unfamiliar with this, try this when you get home. And please wait till you get home rather than doing this for the rest of the sermon. Uh, pick a word, say banana, and repeat it to yourself slowly, 50 times over, just focusing on the word. Banana, 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 banana. It, it won't take too long and you'll be asking some really big existential questions about that word. Who looked at a banana and thought, banana? What, what a weird grouping of sounds. What even is a banana? By the time you said it 50 times, the word banana will basically have lost all meaning in your head. It's just going to be a random collection of syllables. How do you, bana it's, uh, the, the, the point is, there is a point that sometimes repetition means that we begin to forget about the true meaning of something. There are a lot of concepts and ideas that we hear about or we say or we speak a lot that don't really have meaning anymore. For example, how often does somebody say fly by the seat of my pants or escape by the skin of your teeth? No one is actually thinking about the words that they're saying when they use that expression. What do they even mean? Escape by the skin of my teeth. Our brains have this way of shortcutting or skipping over the truth of the words that we are saying and sort of coasting without even really processing it. And I think this can happen and does happen uh, certainly for me sometimes with the word Amen. It's almost just a sound that I make at the end of a prayer. For a lot of us, amen doesn't probably have any significant meaning or, or purpose. It's just this thing that we say. But amen 
is loaded with meaning. In fact, there's something very unique about the word amen. Paul and the other early Christians, they spoke Greek. But they grabbed this word, they borrowed this word amen from Hebrew. It was an important enough word to them that rather than choose a Greek equivalent, they just went and found a way to spell the Hebrew word out phonetically in Greek. They found letters that made those sounds and said, now we have amen here too. And we have kept this word as well. Amen is not a translated word. Amen is said just the way it was thousands and thousands of years ago. And in fact, amen is used all across the world. In Africa, in Asia, in Europe, in North and South America, anywhere there are Christians, there is the word amen. If you go anywhere else in the world to any other country and find Christians praying, you might not understand a single thing they say except for the ending. Amen. Amen is universal. One speaker I heard called amen a little, a little microcosm, a small example of what happens spiritually and intellectually and culturally whenever Christianity comes to a new place. It brings a vision of God in the world that keeps some things in culture and rejects other things in culture, but in the end touches everything in culture. The fact that amen has intruded all over the world into every culture reminds us that no language, no culture, and no worship is complete on its own. There is always more to see and to know and to feel than is possible with our limited vocabulary and thoughts and customs. And even in Paul's time, amen would have been an alien word to the Corinthians, but he brought them this word. And now he says that one of his huge concerns in the church is that they are not able to use this word in the way that Christ has called them to use it. So in order to really understand the word amen, we must make sure to get a sense of its Old Testament background. In the Old Testament, amen was generally a congregational response, an affirmation of something. Basically, it was used to say, yes, we agree. A few quick examples. Uh, in Deuteronomy 27, verse 16, the Levites say, Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. That is to say, we agree with this. Let it be so. This is a good law. Or in Nehemiah, when Ezra opens up the book of God, the word of the Lord, it says, Then Ezra blessed the Lord and great God, and all of the people answered, Amen. Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The amen here meant, yes, we agree with your blessing. We join in your blessing. We echo what you are saying with amen. We also see it popping up through the Psalms. Psalms 106.48 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Psalm 72, 19 says, Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Amen is the congregational way to affirm a leader's blessing. When great things are being spoken about God, when biblical truth is spoken, when truth is heard, the church says, Amen. At a basic level, amen is saying, Yes, we agree. What you say is good, and right, 
and true. And now Paul is coming to Corinth, a Greek-speaking community, and he is teaching them about this word, amen. And there are a few reasons why amen is so important to Paul and this body. First and foremost, amen is a word of agreement, of unity. We talked about that already. How would a church look if we all said, I don't care if you say amen to my prayers or to my time of worship. My relationship with God is about me and God. That's becoming a more and more common way of looking at Christianity. In fact, people often say, you've probably heard, I don't need religion, I just need Jesus. Or I don't need church, I just need Jesus. We live in an individualistic society where people live out, you do you, I'll do me, no one needs to step on each other's toes. Christianity is becoming something sometimes that is primarily about us and God, and the church is secondary. But Paul doesn't seem to agree here. Otherwise, he would be saying, if you speak in tongues, you're clearly more spiritual and closer to God than the other Christians. It's, they're probably dragging you down. It's best to stay home. Don't worry about church. You don't need religion. You just need Jesus. Paul's teachings on Christianity, which are God-breathed scripture, there is a theme running through many of his books, and especially in this letter to the Corinthians, that we are in this together. We need to be in this together. Our amens matter. Our unity matters. And there are two sides to this coin for us. First, the first implication here is that we should always seek to use our own giftedness in the church in a way that blesses others. If Mitch were to have ripped into a five-minute-long guitar solo on the stage in the middle of one of the praise and worship songs, that could have very legitimately been a powerful moment of worship for Mitch. He could have been having an intense time of connection with God. But for those of us left behind, confused, wondering what happened to the song we were all singing together, it might not be. So Paul is saying here, don't do it. If I took a bunch of Greek courses and I was able to read the New Testament in its original language and I came up here and I read to you the Sermon on the Mount in its original Greek, in the same words that Jesus spoke, in the same language, that would very probably be a powerful moment for me. Connecting to those words of Jesus the way they were originally said, but you'd all be sitting there scratching your heads. Paul says we need to worship in the church in a way that allows other people to say amen. And the flip side of that coin is when we are in unity, when you are listening in church and you hear a sermon point you agree with, when a worship session moves you, when the words of a hymn that was picked speak right to your heart, when you notice the sound was done especially well, or when an usher shakes your hand and makes you feel welcome, when a Sunday school teacher helps you understand something differently, when someone shares during the sharing time, when someone speaks a word of truth into the church's life, be quick to say amen to that. Affirm it. Now, I know that we are not a Southern Pentecostal church here. I don't expect to have you shouting up at me and Mike and Darren as we're preaching, but you know, you can nod your head when we make eye contact or give a hearty mm-hmm. <laughs> or come and talk to us after the service. Paul says this is what unity looks like. This is what being a part of God's body is, to affirm each other, 
in words of encouragement. We need, according to this verse, to create a culture of amen in our church. And as we use the word amen, it is essential to remember that God himself has spoken this word loudly and clearly over all history, present and future, in the person of Jesus Christ. If amen is a resounding yes, if amen is a call towards unity and restoration and fellowship and togetherness, then Christ himself is the ultimate amen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul says to this same church in Corinth, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him... It has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Paul says that in Christ, it has always been yes. It has always been amen. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Do you see this? Paul is calling us to unity with this word. And then, in his second letter to the church, he says that God has decreed the most decisive amen possible in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. In him is the ultimate yes, the ultimate unity, the ultimate love. John echoes this in Revelation. In chapter 3.14, he writes, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen the faithful and true witness for the beginning of God's creation. God himself is. Amen. He is faithful. He is here for us. And he is with us. He is the ultimate yes to life's biggest questions. Do we matter? Do we have hope? Can we be saved? Is there something more to life than this? Through Jesus, God says, Amen. Yes over all history and future, over all the earth, over every doubt and fear, yes, whoever believes in him will be saved and have everlasting life. And so when we use this word, this amen, we use it in remembrance and acknowledgement of the one who has made a way for us to be in perfect relationship with him. So as we conclude this series on 1 Corinthians, this series on life in the church, on what it means to be God's body, let us go forward from here with wisdom and morality and sacrificial service and hope in the resurrection with gifts and talents and with love. But in all things, as we gather together, let us live a life that draws in the church to say amen. As Paul writes in verse 26 of chapter 14, What then shall we say, brothers, When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. We all have these strengths we bring to the table of Pleasant Valley, unique giftedness. I look around the congregation, and I see Sunday school teachers, and cleaners, and preachers, and singers, and musicians, and sound men, and elders, and video techs, and ushers, and chair stackers, and deacons, and Bible camp counselors, and prayer warriors, and youth sponsors, And committee members, all of us have gifts. All of us are here for a reason. And what does Paul say that reason is? He finishes the verse by saying, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Our giftedness should be used 
in a way that allows others to say amen. In all we do together, empowered by Christ's sacrifice for us, let us always be focused on inviting each other in and building each other up. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.